When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and I'd like to welcome you to show number 134, We begin our fiction for this week with A Tale of the Rose Knights, called Miriam. It's written by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold and originally published at dailysciencefiction.com. Jay lived in Portland, Oregon until his death in 2014, shortly before his 50th birthday. His books include Kalimpura from Tor and Love in the Time of Metal and Flesh from Prime. His short fiction appeared regularly in literary and genre markets worldwide – Jay was a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. In 2015, he posthumously received the Locus Award for his collection, Last Plane to Heaven. Ruth has published widely in science fiction and fantasy, her fiction appearing in such markets as Asimov's and Fantasy and Science Fiction. Her work has been nominated for the Nebula, Tiptree and Sturgeon Awards, and in 2007, the Italian translation of her novella Looking Through Lace won the Premio Italia Award for Best International Work. Jay and Ruth's collection of short stories, Almost All the Way Home from the Stars, is available at Amazon and via iTunes. This tale is read by Tatiana Gomberg, a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth, She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She lives in New York City. And now, Miriam, by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold. When the Rose Knight, Miriam, arrived in the farthest reaches of the magical lands of High Rugosa, she was already so pale... She soon became known as the Gossamer Knight. She told no one from whence she hailed or why she had sought out the lands of High Rugosa, but rumors abounded. That she had assassinated the leader of the Inner Sea, that she'd poisoned the prince in point of sleep, that she had betrayed her fellow knights in far Jamaica. Some thought they heard the lilt of the moonwood in her voice, others the exotic strains of the farmost west. 
One thing all the stories agreed on. She had been banished. She was mourning. And every day, she disappeared a little bit more. The oldest people knew her story, but they did not tell. Now, while disappearing a little at a time can be seen as a misfortune, it can also have its benefits, especially for a rose knight. The more she disappeared, the more at a disadvantage were her opponents, be it in a battle or a tourney. Since they could not see all of her to aim their weapons, only her armor, and the way she held her own sword and shield. But as her physical person became fainter, her rose fragrance did not. And those knights who had the best chance against her were those who had the best sense of smell. There were others, however, who insisted that Miriam's increasing invisibility gave her an unfair advantage and called for an assembly of the rose knights to do something about it. There it was decided that no knight could participate in tourneys who threw no shadow when naked. The Rose Knights of Hyrugosa gathered in the town square the next afternoon, wearing only leggings and surcoat, while the oldest ones stood in the shadows and gossiped and chuckled. One by one, the knights stepped in front of the mayor and stripped, and each and every one of them threw a shadow. Finally, it was time for the Gossamer Knight— an empty surcoat of pale pink strode forward and bowed in front of the mayor. Then the surcoat was being pulled over an invisible head and dropped to the ground, followed by leggings of the same hue. And it was found that Miriam's shadow was as long as the day, and longer. The mayor nodded. Gossamer Knight, you are herewith officially permitted— to take part in all tourneys under my jurisdiction. The pale surcoat was lifted off the ground and settled over a figure slightly recognizable again. I think not, Miriam said. I see now that the other knights were right, and by losing myself I gained an unfair advantage over them. There is no longer any place for me here in Hyrugosa. The oldest people stopped their chattering and chuckling and moved as one to join the invisible knight. "'You belong with us now, Gossamer Knight.' And thus it came to be that Miriam went away with the old ones, but she left behind her a scent of citrus and vanilla and the most fragrant rose that ever bloomed, as well as a tale told for generations, a tale with mystery at its beginning— and no moral at its end. A story different with every telling, because only the oldest people knew the reason for the disappearance of the Gossamer Knight. And they do not say... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our thanks go to Jay, Ruth, and Tatiana. So, on to our feature story this week, which is Whither Thou Goest by Jerry Lean. Jerry lives in Northern Virginia and originally hails from Seattle. She has work appearing or accepted by Nature, Flame Tree Press's Murder Mayhem and Dystopia Utopia anthologies, Daily Science Fiction, Escape Pod, Grimdark and others. She recently caught the editing bug and is finalising her third anthology for an independent press. You can find her online at jerrylean.com. Her story is read by Andrea Subasati. Andrea is a sociologist, journalist and podcaster. In 2010, her master's thesis on the social impact of zombie cinema was published under the title When There's No More Room in Hell, The Sociology of the Living Dead. She joined the staff of Rumorg magazine in 2014, to which she is a frequent contributor, and her writing has also been published in The Undead and Theology, 2012, and the Canadian horror film Terror of the Soul, 2015. In addition to writing, Andrea is the co-host and producer of the Faculty of Horror podcast with writer Alexandra West. She has made guest appearances on the Rue Morgue podcast and Pseudopod and is co-curator of The Black Museum, a Toronto-based monthly horror lecture series she founded with Canucksploitation creator Paul Karup. Lady Helbat lives and works out of Toronto, Ontario. And now, Whither Thou Goest by Jerry Lean. In the stories of those who survive, I am a heroine. In the stories of my own people, those of us descended from Lot's daughter, from her incestuous union with her own father, I am also a heroine. If two such noble people see me as such, who am I to complain? They both love me because I endure, because I survive, because I cling with holy or is it unholy, fervor to the woman who bore the man I sucked dry. Once she knew what I was, Naomi would have killed me if she could, but her life is forfeit if I should cease to draw breath. I saw to that when I said the ancient words, binding me to her, twining my very breath with hers. Wherever you go, I will go. Beautiful, aren't they, these words of power? of control. Lot's daughters were forced to follow their father into the desert, their mother covering herself with salt for protection against the demon that had overtaken her husband, a demon who burned her in place, leaving only a salted, charred corpse. 
Lot's daughters, unnamed in the books of the survivors, but known to my people, learned to turn the words of servitude into words of angry potency after their father raped them. The survivors changed the story, turned the girls into the ones who sought their father to ensure their progeny's life. But we remember, those of us who hold fast, who suck dry, who never leave once we latch on. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. None can rid themselves of us once we take hold, not while we cling. Don't beg me to leave you or to stop following you. Once there were words of rebuke, designed to claw my kind from the lives of the faithful, but they were lost long before I found Naomi and her husband and her sons. My sister Orpah and I flipped a coin, the hammered side meaning that she would take hold and follow this woman to a new land, but the carved side fell instead, and it was up to me. It hurt to say goodbye to my sister, perhaps the only hurt I'd felt for a long time. Naomi could tell. Look, your sister is going back to her people and her gods. Follow her. Orpah did go back to our gods, and I pledged myself to Naomi's one god, the boundless skies crackling with delight at my heresy. I was consecrated in blood years before. I belonged to the old ones. I would keep my husband's mother in a stranglehold, but not so tight that she ran out of air. For I spoke true when I said, Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. I was tied to her as surely as she was to me. And I have a fear of being trapped underground. We were born in caves, and we fled them as soon as we could, dancing under the stars, lying naked under the fierce winds of the desert, letting the blowing sand scour any remaining sanctity from us. Naomi begged me to stay with Orpah. She wept. She bribed. She even tried to stab me in the night. Fortunately, I'm a light sleeper. I cause nightmares. I do not have them. In the end, she gave up. I called her hag, doomed one, lost lamb. It amused me to watch her become silent as we traveled together. But near Bethlehem, when we stopped for water, I overheard her telling a stout young man who was watering his flock that I was a demon. He laughed at her, but later I caught him following us. I bade him join us, and he basked in the venomous warmth of my smile. I let him into our camp, let him into me, as I sucked him dry and drained the vitality and goodness out of him. I left him a husk of a man on the road to Bethlehem. His seed died within me. He was not of Naomi's line. My womb rejected his offering. Naomi wept bitter tears for him. She thought he looked like my husband, her son. I thought so, too. I enjoyed the similarities heartily. You are unnatural, she said, as I stood in the creek we'd camped by and washed the last of him out of me. Oh, I exist in the natural world. I don't disappear in the light of day. Some of my kind do. They hunt only in the dark, drinking their victim's life away much faster, more directly through the blood. They live long, the dark dwellers, not tied to their victims. But my kind live our shorter existences in the open, 
and that makes us stronger, more alive. You are heinous, a cursed thing. Nothing good lives in you. She was right. Inside, if I let myself feel it, beat the remnants of the broken heart of Lot's girl, robbed of her mother, then of her innocence. Her pain passed through our line, diluted in most of the Moabites. But strong in some of us, those who learned how to turn pain into suffering, into slow, ingenious torture of the soul. We lived to break others. It was the only way we could survive. Then, later, it was the only way we could thrive. I thought Naomi a broken woman when we arrived in Bethlehem. But she stood before her old neighbors telling the truth, if those who listened could have understood her words. She said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord had brought me home empty again. Why call me Naomi, seeing how the Lord has judged me, how the Almighty has afflicted me? None understood. None saw that I was the curse she spoke of. They saw only a young woman devoted to her. I hugged her as she finished her speech. I like it here, I said, as I pulled her close and bit down on her neck, not breaking skin, but sucking hard enough to leave a bruise just behind her ear. Leave me, she said, and her voice seemed to shatter, as if her last hope had been here, in this place with these people. Had she thought her homeland could save her from me? I can never leave you, but I can add to our family. And I turned to look at her kinsman, Boaz, a handsome, wealthy man who smiled with delight on both of us. No. Naomi's voice was little more than breath, warm across my face as she pulled me to face her. Do what you will with me, but leave him alone. What you love, I will love. She fell away from me with a cry, and I let her go. My eyes met Boaz, and he was mine. Even if he didn't know it, even if his blood was not yet singing for me, I could feel the spark of attraction that would someday bind him to me. I lowered my eyes, keeping them downcast as a young maiden should. I hurried after Naomi and did not look back. But if I had, Boaz would have been staring after me. And now I make plans for him. He knows me only as the Moabite who followed her beloved mother-in-law home. How do I win him? I ask Naomi when I find her in our new house, small and not very tidy. Where are all the riches of my father-in-law? I will not help you. This Boaz will care for us. He will spoil us and make us the envy of every woman in town. I do not relish sharing this with Naomi, but the binding works both ways. I cannot forsake her, not once the words have been spoken. She will not answer. I will kill him if I cannot win him. I lean in, press my lips against hers, and feel her shudder at my touch. Shall I do that? Shall I kill him? She pulls away and I let her. Her lips are chapped where mine rested against them. You lack the humility to win him, she says. A challenge? I do love those. 
To my surprise, she tells me of the old ways, the gleaning and the barley and corn I must lay claim to. Her eyes gleam in a strange way when she speaks of water vessels that can only be touched with Boaz's permission, of the danger of following strange men in a field. You think they will harm me? You think they can harm me? If you dishonor us, they will stone us both. She does not care anymore, the old witch. She may dishonor us herself if given half the chance. I pull her to me, lips pressed again to hers, sucking in this time, pulling her strength, leaving just enough to let her get around the house, but nothing more. She falls when I let her go, and I do not help her up. They will not stone us, old woman. I leave her and seek out Boaz's fields, keeping my head down, picking up the hatefully sharp gleaning, pieces of grain that would not have been good enough for my horses back in the house Orpa and I grew up in. I do not join in with the other girls. I go home to Naomi when it is time, rather than sitting and laughing as they do. I do not talk to the young men, and I grow to understand that Boaz, who rides through the fields upon occasion, has told them to stay away from me. I make sure the townsfolk see me helping Naomi, bringing a chair for her and putting it outside the front door when the sun goes down and the dust settles. She's weak, and she hasn't the energy to glare at me, but her hatred pulses between us. I will have him, Hag. And then we will live in this fine house and dine at his rich table, and I will suck the life from him just as I did your husband and sons. I lean in but not before he has given me a son. A son who is an abomination, she murmurs. Not until his lips fasten on my breast. His path is unclear until then. I lean back and stroke my belly, as if life already grows inside it. When my son nurses from me, I will feed him the pain of Lot's daughter, and he will grow strong in the memories. Orpa has the sight, mother mine. She had a vision the day we left and told me that from my loins would come kings. We have no kings here. Not yet. I grab her hand as I see Boaz approach. I can feel Naomi trying to muster energy to speak, and I suck hard on her essence until she grows too weak to talk. Kinswoman, you prosper. Boaz crouches at her feet, and I watch him through my hair as I keep my face turned down. And you, Ruth? We are well fed, thanks to you. It is very little that I give you. It is more than we had. I lift my head and let him gaze on me. I know I am beautiful. I must go. He does not look as if he wishes to go. I reach out, let my hand fall on his forearm, and read everything I need to know from the way his pulse races in the veins beneath my touch. He wants me. He will do anything for me. Except ask me outright. Except marry me. I am... I am beneath him. Anger flows through me. Who is he to think himself my better? I pull my hand away before I can convey that anger to him, before I begin to drain him out of rage. With a last smile, he walks away, calling out to those he passes. 
Ruth, Naomi says, her voice shaking. In anger, I sense, as much as exhaustion. I grab her hand and give her back some of the energy I've stolen. What, old woman? He was nothing when I left. My husband towered above him. Naomi's voice is brittle. He gives us his leavings. Yes, I stroke her hand. And a moment of his time. I can feel a war inside her. It surprises me, but she's been burdened with me for so long. A second hateful skin that perhaps I'm rubbing off on her. You want to have him? She looks torn. And then she touches the faded robe she wears and smiles wistfully. I would like a glass of wine. Fine wine like we had in Moab. Wouldn't we all? But I give her back a little more energy because this conversation is getting interesting. Myself, I'm tired of picking up grain. It is beneath you. Naomi meets my eyes with a look of hate, but one that seems devoid of its usual self-righteousness. And it is beneath me, too. And we are one, Mother. She normally hates it when I call her that, but she seems not to even notice it this time. As I help her inside, I ask, Surely there is a way to get what we deserve. An old ritual, but one that cannot be denied. Tell me. She does, her voice faltering as she details what I must do, so I fill her with energy again. Hide among the grain, she says. Wait until Boaz drinks with the men and falls asleep on the threshing floor, then lie at his feet and let him wake to find you there. It reeks of the stories Naomi's people tell of Lot's daughters. Get a man drunk, have your way with him. All to get an heir. A son. A life beyond this one. But to get a king, I will do it. Naomi looks at me as I bathe. She doesn't avert her eyes as she so often does. What? I ask. You do not look evil. You do not look evil. She leans in. But you are. Your evil corrupts like rot on bread. I think I'm a bit more subtle than that. I laugh as I wind the finest cloth we have around me. And then I kiss her, not draining her this time, for once feeling she is indeed my mother, and she lets me hold her and doesn't pull away from my lips. We will live better than this. Naomi shudders her hand clutching at me, as if she could keep me from Boaz. He is a good man. I wait. If it can be done, I want to see her fall. I want to see her give in to our power. But she mutters to herself an ancient prayer to her God. I feel a different power grow around her, a power that pushes me out of her a little. But only a little. Wish me luck, I say, as I go to find Boaz. The waiting is boring, the sound of men laughing and drinking tedious. I send my spirit casting through the sky, into the far reaches of this land, seeking out any who are like me. Here and there I find them. The dark ones. The cursed ones. 
and those just awakening to their power. I come back to my body when I hear Boaz settling down in the grain. I crawl to his side and sit watching him. Then I put my fingers on his lips, let them trail down his chin, his neck, his chest, stopping when I reach his waist. I can feel his energy, such vitality. He will give me a strong son. With that thought in my heart, I lie at his feet and wait. He snores. He rolls. He talks in his sleep. The sun is nearly up and he has still not stirred. I grab a sharp blade of grain, poke it into his foot, and then let it fall as he finally wakes. Who's there? His heart is beating. I can feel his fear. I sit up as if confused from sleep. I'm Ruth, your handmaid. My hand steals to his calf, grips it tightly. Claim me, for you are my family. He does not look happy. I drag lightly at his essence, pulling what I need into me. He's familiar, enough like Naomi that I can twine myself into him the same way I do her. I am yours, I say. What I mean, of course, is that he is mine. Sweat beads on his forehead even as he makes plans for our future. I feel his vitality flowing into me, and from far off, I can tell that Naomi is feeling it too. I leave him, secure in the knowledge that he will do as he must to have me. In time, ritual challenges are given and won. Naomi and I are moved into his fine house, and I take him to bed, knowing Naomi can feel the edge of our passion. When I check on her in the morning, she looks sick. Will it be like this always? He is your blood. We are all one. She holds a knife over a loaf of bread the servants have brought. Moving the blade away from the food, she dangles it over her wrist. It would be such an easy thing. But she does not do it. It would be such a holy thing. But she does not do it. I'm damned, she says, as she throws the knife down and flees the room. I wonder if she realizes how easily she's moving. If she knew that the life force that feeds me is also feeding her. Since moving into Boaz's house, she looks ten years younger. Our neighbors say it is due to the easier life. I know otherwise. She knows before I do that I am with child. She finds me throwing up and smooths back my hair as if I were a child. Her child. It will pass, she says. It better. But it does not. The child that I carry... That is my legacy to a world that would hate me if it understood me. Drains my energy to such an extent that I have to pull more and more from Boaz. He begins to falter, his vitality fading as my belly grows. Boaz barely survives to see his son born. He takes him from the midwife, his smile triumphant, and then I grab the child away as Boaz falls to the floor. The midwife drops to her knees, and I try to look sad as she tells me my husband is dead. My son stirs, seeking my breast, 
and I smile at the brush of his spirit wanting to be freed. But then I feel him being pulled from my arms. What? Naomi has her robes open. Her once old breasts now glisten with milk. Drink, child. Drink from me. I scream as I feel the spirit of my son rush away from me and into Naomi. I try to grab him from her, but she carries him away, the sound of his suckling like the drag of a chair over a stone floor. Hush, Ruth, your mother will take care of you now, the midwife says, and I know she does not realize Naomi is feeding my child. She leans down, her hand gentle on my face. We all know how kind you've been to her, how much you love her. There is something in her eyes, and I reach down and realize I am bleeding. Lie still, Naomi says. Lie still, Naomi says, or you will surely die. As will you. I do not care. I don't care that the midwife is hearing this. I don't care about anything. As will he, your begetter of kings. I lie still. I cannot lose him. Not now. Naomi hands my child to me, and as soon as his mouth fastens on my breast, I can feel the pain inside me cease, and I know I've stopped bleeding. The midwife looks at us as if we were both mad. My daughter-in-law is not from here, all this talk of kings, Naomi says. But then you know that. Everyone knows about Ruth, my devoted little outsider. Naomi leans in, kisses my son, and whispers, Wherever you go, I will go. The curse does not work for her, not the same way it works for me. But my son stops suckling long enough to meet her eyes with his own. His are older than they should be. They see more clearly than a newborn's ought to. Then they fasten on me. And they are filled with something else. It looks a bit like hatred. His name is Obed, I say. It means servant. He will serve Naomi, not me. It fills me with pain to call him that. But it is a true name, and while I am evil, I am not blind to the truth. I touch his forehead, and he starts to cry. Naomi takes him from me and kisses me on the cheek. You will always have a home with us, dear. She's clearly enjoying this. I've definitely rubbed off on her. The pain starts up again. I pull at Naomi's life force, feel energy draining out of her but the child is filling her with what he's draining from me. I hear her laugh with delight. The baby gurgles. My son. Her son. I reach out with everything in me, feel some part of him respond. Then nothing. Naomi lets the midwife leave and has the servants remove Boaz for burial. I lie in blood-soaked linens and wish so hard for oblivion that I can hear the dry wings of death approaching. But then I feel my son in my arms again, and Naomi leaves him with me. She is still tied to me, and she does not want to die. It's not much, but it's enough for now.
Jerry's story originally appeared in the anthology She Nailed a Stake Through His Head, Tales of Biblical Terror. And when she sent it to us over in the summer, we were hooked by the notion of Ruth's statement to Naomi being a curse rather than devotion. And while we're speaking about story submissions, please take note. Far-Fetched Fables' next submission window is just around the corner, January 1st through the 31st to be exact. Visit the submissions page on our website for details. Links to the websites and social media pages for the authors and narrators featured in this episode can be found in the links for this episode on our Triple F website. While you're there, please feel free to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories on the site, on our Facebook page or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes or other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. And also... If you could consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page, we'll be able to keep the podcast up and running. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will wander the earth looking for a chance to sing joy to the world. And on that rather odd note, I'll be off. See you next week, everyone. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.